Welcome to Engaging History. My name is Christopher Kinsella, author of Chain of Deception. I'm a professor of history at Cuyahoga Community College in Northeast Ohio. My podcasts are not endorsed by any individual or organization. This podcast is my opinion and interpretation of the historical events that I will discuss. The purpose of the podcasts are in general to discuss American and world history in a way that engages you and explains so much of the country and the world around you. But I also discuss it in a way that is understandable and interesting. Welcome to the 18th podcast in the second half of world history. In the 17th podcast, we started to bring World War I to a close. Even though we went over the Schlieffen Plan enacted by the Germans and we did a quick overview of the war itself, specifically in the Eastern and the Western theaters, we also looked at the war in the high seas as well as the stalemate that ultimately resulted. But it would be a four-year slog racking up truly millions and millions of deaths, where we also reviewed those specific numbers as well as the percentages of the population that was negatively impacted as a result of the war. We also briefly discussed the overview of the peace conferences at Versailles, France. So because of all of this, as well as the formation of the League of Nations and the German punishment, it brought an end to the war However, as many people in the 1920s feared, as well as historians retrospectively pointing out, that indeed that resolution of the war itself, unfortunately, only sowed the seeds of a future conflict because of the way that the Italians, Germans, and Russian faces were more or less mired in the mud and used as the scapegoat for being the ones solely responsible for the onset of the war, specifically Germany, as we'll take a look uh, more so in this podcast. I also then went over, and again, this is what I mean by an analysis where we take the camera, go way up for a macro view, but by reviewing the new technologies, applications of the machine gun and trench warfare and poison gas and the rise of the tanks and aircraft in submarines, all of the technology that is being invented, people are racing forward with the patents to try to get an upper hand on the battlefield that is only becoming more and more deadly. So that brought an end, as I say, to the 17th podcast where we went over World War I and brought it to a close. And in this podcast, we're going to be looking at why Russia pulled out of the war when she did, what was going on inside there, and what did the 1920s look like in Europe as well as compared to that of what was going on in America? So we start with looking at the reason why Russia pulled out of the war for what would retrospectively be called the Russian Revolution. At the turn of the year 1917, as the war is raging, but unfortunately, again, only a stalemate with the bodies just simply racking up faster than people can count, the year 1917 found Russia truly near economic and political death. The last czar of Russia, Nicholas II, 
and the Romanov dynasty had a difficult time trying to remain in command. He had dissolved the Duma, the political powerhouse, more or less the equivalent of our Congress. He dissolved that. He ultimately would ad, uh, abdicated the throne. He came back, reconvened, attempted to reconvene the Duma. All of this political unrest wasn't boding well with the commoners. As a result, an individual by the name of Alexander Kerensky rose in an attempt to try to establish far more political stability, but it wasn't to be. Because Vladimir Lenin, who was exiled from Russia prior, was able to sneak back in with the help of the Germans, ironically enough, to sneak back into Russia itself and ultimately planned what became known as the Russian Revolution of late 1917. On November 6th of that year, Lenin and his counterpart, Leon Trotsky, overthrew the Duma. And we don't have necessarily exact paper proof to point out that Lenin or Trotsky directly had ordered the assassination of the last Tsar family of Russia, but by 1921, there was no political opposition to Lenin and his plan for a communist Russia led by the workers, which translated into German, excuse me, into Russian means Soviet. And that's what he meant by the Union of Soviet Socialist Republic, the USSR. With the royal family dead, and yes, there was some possible conjecture that one of the, one of Nicholas's daughters survived and was able to escape from the house and lived in exile for a while and then eventually made a name for herself elsewhere, largely has no, maybe plausible, but has no actual historical proof. By 1921, Lenin had killed the last Tsar in his family in a basement of a home in the outskirts of Siberia. And any political opposition at all, Mensheviks, would also be eliminated. It is because of this, when Lenin immediately came to power, that one of the first acts that he did was to remove Russia from the First World War, or as they're calling at that time, the Great War. When he did that, however, it threw Britain and France into turmoil as they needed Russia to be that balancing power so that Russia and the Austro-Hungarian Empire would have to con confront a two-front two war. With Russia being pulled out of the war, that emboldened the Austro-Hungarians and the Germans to now put all their, all their weight on the European Western Front in order to try to make up for lost ground and lost time. And as we discussed in that last podcast, all that would do, sadly, is just add once again to a battle where, by and large, battle of attrition, where, by and large, nobody is gaining any ground one way or another. However, with the advent of the American soldiers, it did tip the scales in Britain and France's favor, allowing them to not only conduct, but lead those wartime treaty uh, peace conferences which carved out much benefits for the victors, Britain and France, at the expense of the losers, 
Germany, and the Austro-Hungarians, and even marginally Italy. So that brings an end again to our discussion of the Russian Revolution. Now, what was going on, and we'll return to Russia once again, and now they called the Soviet Union, because of the massive role that she's going to play as we move forward in the 20th century. The, what becomes known as the political experiments of the 1920s in Europe was taking place because Europe, to, to put this in a massive understatement, was simply devastated by the First World War. When we think of the 1920s, the average American immediately or most likely thinks of those titles, those nicknames that America in the 1920s is known for. The age of the soda jerks, the age of the of jazz, the age of the flapper, the jazz age, uh, prohibition. So many different titles. In fact, there are more nicknames for the 1920s in American history than any other decade in America's past. America was making money hand over fist as Europe attempted to rebuild and needed loans from American banks who loaned the Europeans the money who turned around and bought American products. Again, that's the reason that I say, and it's not, it's not in any way a slam against American bankers, American capitalism or enterprise. It's the way it works. But it was a roaring 20s that by and large was unique to the United States of America. It was not worldwide. So what we're going to see with the post-war problems creeping up within Europe is number one is the inconsistency in those Paris treaties. First off, and no surprise, with the Tsar Basin and the Sudetenland, excuse me, and the uh, Rhineland, the Rhineland and the Tsar Basin that were once economic powerhouses for Germany, those now belong to France where France splits those proceeds with Great Britain. But the money that is obtained from those German territories does not get credited towards the German debt. To put this into a very crude example, the idea would be that you get pulled over for speeding and the ticket you get, you receive, let's just not, let's not use the term $778 billion, which is what Germany owed, Britain and France and the Allies. No, we're just going to say that the ticket that you have, though, is for an obscene dollar amount. A ticket or a fine so high that it would immediately wipe out all your assets that you have, wipe out your savings account, etc. And the courts say, don't worry about it. You have plenty of time to pay. So you continue to work at your job and maybe you take two jobs. But meanwhile, while you're working, the government gets the paycheck from those jobs, but that money doesn't get credited towards your debt. How do you possibly try to repay that debt without borrowing? And how do you borrow when you have no assets to put up as collateral? Again, it's a crude, truly a crude way of trying to characterize the nature of this massive debt that was put on the Germans. And the Germans were feeling it. Germany, therefore, was not able to make the repayments. She was not able to keep the schedule, regardless of how many times it was modified. Politicians were seeking vengeance against Germany, outside of the German state, as well as within. Post-war peace conferences excluded Germany. 
It also excluded the newly developed Soviet Union. So was it any surprise that the Rapallo Agreement was formed between the Germans and the Soviets, causing much anxiety and unrest within the other European countries? But within all those treaties that made up the treaties of Versailles, they never said that Germany cannot go into some type of political arrangement or treaty or agreement with any other foreign power. So Germany and the Soviet Union admittedly will become the arch nemesis of one another in just a few years out. For the time being, your enemy's enemy is your friend. Exactly. The economic troubles were also plaguing all of the countries of the continent of Europe. A large segment of the population was dead. Again, in the prior podcast, I reviewed the actual numbers as well as the percentage of the individual countries and how they were negatively impacted with the massive loss of life. So therefore, the very backbone, the muscle that would be required to rebuild Europe has had a serious deficit due to death serving in the First World War. Europe's industrial capacity, her railroad systems, harbors, all of them were wiped out or ruined to the point of being able to not be unusable until being able to be rebuilt. But with what money, with what resources, and with what manpower? It truly was a downward spiral where there almost did not look like there was any light at the end of the tunnel. It's no surprise, though, that America would be looked at as the economic powerhouse in which the European countries individually could borrow money from and ultimately buy the raw materials to eventually rebuild the infrastructure of their countries. And in the meantime, they would also be buying all of the, all of the constant needs that an individual would need, such as food and potable water, clothing, and other supplies that, again, one takes for granted. So this is how Europe was attempting to struggle. While America roared due to our financial good fortune after the First World War, they truly are trying to keep their lives together by gum and shoestring. So is it any surprise, again, that leaders throughout the Eurasian continent will be looking to experiment with different forms of government to try to forge their way forward and not be vulnerable to a foreign invasion. This is why Lenin and Trotsky experimented with this idea of the Union of Soviet Socialist Republic. They did form a dictatorship, a dictatorship which means the orders are barked from the top down. There are no democratic principles. There is no public opinion concerns. How would this Russian people, Soviet people have put up with this? Because the justification put forth by Lenin was the government is working for the Soviets. It's working for the workers. But the devastating toll on the individuals would soon be felt and would last for decades, arguably even well over a century. Yes, into the 2020s. First off, because there was no regard for individualism. There was no opportunity for private enterprise. Experimenting was scoffed at. The idea of trying to own something privately, you would be looked at as greedy. So it's also no surprise that landlords, capitalists, dissenters, 
they wouldn't be tried in court. They would be simply sent to the gulags, the Soviet war camps, or simply killed dead on the street. The reason being Lenin and Trotsky's defense or justification for this was their thought was fear would restore order. Sure it does, but it also sows the, sows the seeds of unrest underneath as well. Lenin, ultimately living in a one-bedroom apartment himself, truly did not live high off the hog. He was and tried to be an example of what he expected all the Soviet people to live like. He suffered a stroke in 1922 and ultimately died in 1924. That left a power vacuum at the top echelons of power where so many people thought Leon Trotsky would be the given successor to Lenin. Leon Trotsky might have been good philosophically, but he also had a massive under, uh, misunderstanding of the impact of one of the prominent men members of Lenin's inner circle, a man by the name of Joseph Stalin. A name which last name which translates into English meaning steel. Both of them would buy for power, but ultimately Stalin would prevail because he had the support of the political base within the Soviet Union. Trotsky would eventually find out about his ill fortune politically, fled not only the Soviet Union, but the entire Eurasian continent, and was eventually found in Mexico where he was killed with an ice pick. So that is an update again as to how the Soviets are attempting to rebuild in light of the devastating effects of World War I. Let's turn our attention to Italy. What's going on there? They're experimenting with a political system called fascism. Fascism defined, simply put, is a political base where large political parties, with the use of terror and police surveillance, to minimize political opposition. So fascism, in order for it to work, needs a political base with those large political competing parties that would eventually boil down to one. And the strongest one, which would be led, of course, by World War I vet Benito Mussolini, ultimately would use terror again and police surveillance to minimize and eventually eliminate any political opposition. How and why would somebody like Mussolini have been able to rise back to power? Number one, rise to power. But number one was because of his truly grandiose thinking. He read the Italian people's mentality in that so many Italians resented the Treaty of Versailles and the lack of participation that was allowed by the Italian people. And he benefited from that. He reminded the Italian people of that. Mussolini was also a grandiose thinker in that his, and part of his political platform is he wanted to return Italy truly to res eventually resemble the map that Italy's influence would eventually resemble the map of the former Roman Empire. So to say again that Mussolini was again grandiose in his thinking. One might say that truly he was completely disconnected with reality, but he had the support of the Italian people initially. And who wouldn't support somebody that was decrying peace treaties that were making more victims than anything else? Who wouldn't support a European leader 
who points to a map of the ancient world and says we can return to that. Remember that the Roman Empire, at the height of its land holdings, that went from southern England to the far eastern side of the Mediterranean world, once comprised more land than currently has 35 modern-day countries around the Mediterranean world. So people were sucked up into this grandiose thinking of this political chameleon by the last name of Mussolini, to the point that the king of Italy, Victor Emmanuel II, was racked by his ideas, truly was shaken by them, and thought what better way to keep an eye on him than to give him the office of prime minister where he reports directly to me. It would also not only appease him, but appease his supporters as well. And that was the beginning of the end because the fascists would gain more and more of a majority party status that would eventually end coalition government and ultimately end any legitimate parliament, parliamentary life. Fascism was mirroring that of the Soviet Union with becoming a brutal dictatorship. How did the average person fare in post-World War I, or at this time we're still calling it a post-Great War Italy. Well, motherhood was encouraged with programs like maternity leaves and medical insurance. Contraception and abortion were outlawed because Mussolini knew that if he was going to return Italy back to the former days of the Roman Empire, he would have to raise a substantially large army. And that part of the population that was decimated in the, in the Great War would have to be replaced. Hence the reason why there was such a huge emphasis put on not only motherhood, but creating, quote unquote, the ideal human being. It's not that Mussolini did not experiment with different things like, so, like human engineering. However, he would be dwarfed, as would his efforts, by his ally to the immediate north, a man that at this point nobody by and large had ever heard of, called Adolf Hitler. And that's where we turn now to our focus onto post-Great War Germany and how they were faring. Germany was attempting to not only be able to pay its own bills, but to repay the huge war debt that was enacted on it in the Treaty of Versailles to practically no avail. The government established at this time was the Weimar government, spelled W-E-I-M-A-R. And while this government established by a constitution, the constitution allowed of, of Germany allowed for any party interest to have proportional representation. So notice, it's not a single party system, it's a multi-party system. Yes, of which that eventual political party called the Nazis will eventually be one of those political parties competing for seats. So that's one of the things that I want to point out that the Weimar Constitution allowed. They allowed multi-party competition. The second thing that the Weimar Constitution allowed is often overlooked, but I think it's extremely important to stress that considering the facts that are eventually going to unfold as time marches on. The president, the Constitution allowed 
for the president or the chancellor of Germany. So those are not one-off. Those not, Both of those positions are not one-off. Those are two separate posts, two separate positions, the president and then below him, the chancellor. The Weimar Constitution allowed the president or the chancellor if the other office was vacant. So if the presidency was vacant, the chancellor could do this. And if the chancellery's office was vacant, the president could do this. And what the Weimar Constitution allowed them to do was assume all power in government, all power of both offices, put those offices together in times of emergency and establish, I'm emphasizing the word temporary, dictatorship. Now are the bells dinging? The bells going off? Yes. That combination of both of those offices would be then given the title Fuhrer. This constitution, constitutional allowment, please know, Adolf Hitler had nothing to do with creating the Weimar Constitution. And this is what I'm going to say now, and I will reflect this again. And please know I'm prefacing right now that what I'm about to share with you in the next podcast about Adolf Hitler, please know I do not have this man on a pedestal. I have studied the man extensively. I have no problem claiming to be an expert on this man. But I'm telling you right now that so much of what the average person learns about Hitler is either mythically twisted to water down his story, or in some cases, his most deadly aspects of his personality are eliminated so as not to cover it at all. The problem and the reason why I emphasize the background of Adolf Hitler in the next podcast especially, into all of my face-to-face classes, is yes, the man, thank God, is dead and gone. But what I want my students to be aware of are the childhood, teenage years, adolescent years, and the early lives of world leaders today that truly have the capacity to be Hitlers in the making, if especially if the world does not pay attention. We know the massive death and destruction and devastation that Adolf Hitler caused. But ladies and gentlemen, believe me when I tell you that Adolf Hitler had written all of this out before he was even an anybody in the political system of any country around the world, much less Germany. So please note that with the Weimar Constitution, that again, the offices could be combined in times of civil emergency. And at the same time that that, those offices could be combined, this would allow a future representative of just one of those over 40 competing political parties in Germany to be able to ultimately get the upper hand and eventually become the Fuhrer of Germany. And I'm going to end this podcast now by saying something that is extremely loaded and very, very difficult on the ears to hear. 
and I will flesh this out in the next podcast. But believe me when I tell you that this maniacal tyrant by the name of Adolf Hitler, that by the time he got to the position in power that he needed to be in, in his own sick mind, please know that the vast majority of the moves that he made politically and militarily were done either through the ballot box or it was done based on constitutional allowments based on a document that was written and in effect before Hitler was even known. And that's what we'll begin with in the next podcast, because as in this podcast, I gave a rough overview of the political and economic situations in Russia and in Italy, paled in comparison to the devastating financial situation that Germany was finding herself in as the 1920s roared on for Americans, but only eked by day by day for a more and more devastating group of people called the Germans. And when we begin our next podcast, I'm going to look at that financial impact with some hard numbers to try to be able, and with an analogy, to be able to try to understand just how devastating the German economy was during America's Roaring Twenties. So thank you for listening. Please go to my website, ceconsella.com. Email me with any questions or comments you might have. If you liked what we discussed today as well, please leave me a review. Thanks again for listening. Have a great day.